You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, I get to start us off this week, which is super exciting. Uh, And guess what? What? Uh, Chicken butt. Always. Two weeks later, I'm still not done doing kind of scary things, but at least this one looks cute. Okay. Cute, but scary. So my story this week is about a mouse. Oh. Okay. Some people are very scared of mice. I think that's where the cute cute. part comes in though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So say you're hanging (laughs) on the prairie. (laughs) <laughs> I don't mind mice. I think they're fine. I've taken care of okay. them before. Um, so say you're hanging out in a prairie or maybe in the Sonoran Desert, uh, as one does, um, do. and you happen to spot a mouse. Weak. Cool. Kind of spot fun. It. I don't mind there, them yeah. when they're not in my house. Um, sure. And alive in my house. Anyway. Uh, so it looks a lot like a white footed mouse, actually like a juvenile. It has a gray body, uh, gray to russety brown body with a white belly, Uh but the mouse looks a lot smaller. It's about 5.9 inches long from snout to tail. Um, to to the the tip of the tail, to the tip of the tail. Okay. Okay. So pretty small. It's not very big. Um, and it weighs about two times as much as a white-footed mouse. Wait, what? <laughs> is it spherical? It's extremely like what are we? dense. It's very mouse? dense. Like this mouse the looks lead... muscular. Okay. It's got feet that. This are mouse looks like it could long. throw you down. <laughs> it's ready to fight. All right. It is. It is a swole mouse. Yeah. Um, and like this mouse too has longer fingers and like really sharp looking claws. Cause okay, obviously okay. I do not like this mouse very much. <laughs> well, this isn't a white footed mouse. This is a grasshopper mouse. Oh, Oh, I've either right. of you okay. heard of a grasshopper mouse. Like maybe I'm going to, I'm going to say no. Ooh. I've so been to the really Sonoran unique. desert. I don't think I saw any there. <laughs> uh, so these are really unique <laughs> mice um, because uh, this nocturnal mouse uh, hunts and eats scorpions, centipedes, beetles, crickets, snakes, and grasshoppers, but it will also wow. eat other rodents like oh. white-footed mice, voles, and kangaroo rats. This rat mouse is carnivorous. Wow. <laughs> carnivorous mouse. Whoa. It's also, I, mean, I, guess, I dare say, badass. Like, that is... Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. I mean, I think a lot of mice eat insects, but to eat sure, other rodents is kind of, kind of uh, mm-hmm. unusual. Metal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there are three species of grasshopper mouse, and they're the only carnivorous rodents 
uh, that are mice that we know of, which is kind of really? crazy. Are they yeah. entirely carnivorous? Okay, cool. Yes. Well, wow. yes, for the most part. They do eat like maybe some <laughs> seeds and berries and things, but for the most part, like they're it's more incidental. It, yeah, it's more carnivorous. They go for like scorpions if they can. Just like a deer will occasionally eat a bird. Exactly. Right. Um, exactly. So the weird, grasshopper, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> it is weird. When I first found that out, I was like, wait, what? Yeah, that's. If you didn't know, now you know. <laughs> yep. Deer will just see a bird in the ground and be like, oh, all right, and pick it up and chomp, eat it. Chomp, chomp, chomp. <laughs> that's how they do. A little uh, extra protein snack. Pretty much. Yep. Oh, horrifying. Um, what about the mice? But the gra- Okay, so the grasshopper mouse will stalk its prey, uh, sneaking up to it like a cat and actually pouncing on the prey. Um, wow. They have specialized molars that actually help them rip apart arthropods. And they have more muscle attachment in their jaw that allows for greater strength with this, too. Totally huh. metal. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, remember when I said that they can eat and kill centipedes? Yeah. As well as scorpions? Scorpions, yeah. Wow, impressive. Oh, are they, well, are they like immune to their venom? We'll get into it. Uh, so this mouse uh, will eat and kill scorpions that act and centipedes that actually kill other mice. Uh, they're super quick. Uh, they keep out of reach and they keep biting through the exoskeleton until the centipede can't move anymore. Um, Jeez. And in fact, feeding on the scorpion that they prefer to feed on is the bark scorpion. Uh, I don't know if either of you know oh. much about that, but that's... Uh, no. It is a very venomous... Uh, is one of the most... Uh, venomous scorpions in North America. Oh, wow. Um, and feeding on the bark scorpion uh, actually allowed the grasshopper mouse to, um, like, they co-evolved with bark scorpions. Um, so it'll, grasshopper mice have sensory neurons that reject the neurotoxin of the scorpion venom as well as, like, the centipede venom. Wow. They, like, and armored neurons, basically. Yeah, and instead it sends a signal that the mouse is not in pain. So pretty much giving it an immunity and in some ways it actually acts like a painkiller to the mouse. Like it still hurts because they're being bit and like stung. So they're they'll stop for it. a second, but it turns, your, their body turns it into a painkiller. And they're like, oh, wait a minute, I feel better now. Let's go. Exactly. Super crazy. That is wild. If all that wasn't weird enough, the grasshopper mouse is actually super territorial. And how they defend the territory that they mark with scent, they actually rear up on their hind legs, on the rear feet, lift their head up, and howl <laughs> like a little wolf or a coyote. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just realized just now that you're making all of this up. <laughs> I am not. Uh, I will have a picture of this on our uh, social media. Um, this are there recordings of them being like... There are recordings of them howling, yes. I will see if I can get one onto our Look Instagram. Uh, it's oh crazy. Um, also kind of weird for a mouse, uh, both parents participate in the child care. So they're uh, co-parented, actually, and it allows the the children 
end up being more aggressive <laughs> if they're raised by both parents. Okay. Um, yeah. Maybe so that's the- what's happening with my children. <laughs> 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 oh, Victoria. Um, so these three species, they're found in North America, um, all the way from the northeastern edge here in Minnesota, all the way down to Mexico and California. Um, but that's a large range, and I just wanted to share with yeah, both of you uh, and all of our listeners the carnivorous mouse. That, that was done awesome. being scary. <laughs> I won't forget that. <laughs> Super cool. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, it'll be Victoria. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature. See you soon. Hey, we're back. Uh, If you remember last week, I talked about a mystery larva that is found swimming all over the oceans of the world. And if you haven't listened to that yet, you should go back because at the end um, of that episode, I talked about what the mystery larva might be. But in researching that, I came across a description of a really delightful and horrifying parasite that, of course. Is, the, that is the cousin of last week's mystery animal. Oh, great. And yeah, I okay. thought it really deserved its own episode. And you know is, we is love this, parasites on this show. We do love parasites. Absolutely. They just keep giving. Yes. I mean, they keep taking, but yeah, same idea. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I... I actually did mention this parasite at the end of the episode last week. Oh, um, I was wondering if it was the the one that is uh, with the, the crabs and the lobsters. Yes, it's the crab parasite. So cool. it's, a, it's actually a parasitic barnacle uh, in the genus Saculina. And it is only classified with the barnacles because of what its free-swimming larvae look like. Because oh, as you will okay. discover... The adults look nothing like a barnacle. Of course um, not. Fair. And I kind of described barnacles last week, but they're, you know, the, the, the adults are those sort of crusty, rocky-looking little things that are stuck to things under the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, but they swim around as little larvae. And um, so these quote-unquote barnacles, the saculina, they are parasites of crabs, mainly the European green crab. Um, so here's how their life cycle goes. <laughs> Buckle up. Actually, this is not a very complicated life cycle for a parasite, but it's still complicated okay. enough. Um, so uh, step one, a female saculina larva lands on a green crab and will crawl along until it reaches uh, an, a leg joint. And then it has to find like a special hair follicle. Not oh. really a hair, but like a... 
kind of a whisker. They have little right. sensory things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it uses that to inject itself into the crab's body. So what it oh. does, yeah, it simultaneously, oh. it simultaneously uh. enters the crab's body, exits its exoskeleton, uh, it, it transforms into its next stage, this juvenile, while entering the crab's body. And it forms a new um, kind of flexible exoskeleton so it's kind of worm-like i'm uncomfortable already i'm so so uncomfortable (laughs) the old exoskeleton is left outside of the crab and now it's the slug-like parasite inside (laughs) oh weird Uh okay that's crazy okay (laughs) gosh i don't like that all right that's like shedding like oh that's shedding like a jacket when you come in to a a house except it's like someone walking up to you and like Shaking your hand and then like go like you know they, inside you and leave their husk of a human skin laying on the floor. That's what it's like. Yep, exactly like Awful. that. Awful. Exactly like that. Yes. I didn't like that noise you made. Horror movie producers take note. Yes. Yep, we would like credit. <laughs> so the parasite then travels through the crab's body and goes to a low point on the crab's belly, and. It grows there. Uh, as it grows, it causes the crab's underside to kind of bulge out. Meanwhile, it's sending almost uh, these root-like tendrils throughout oh. the entire body of the crab. Oh, do not like oh, okay. every part of it. Uh-huh. The purpose of which is to harvest nutrients. Of course. Of yeah. course. Because what else would you do? You are a parasite. Right. We're just, we're, we're just continuing the Halloween episode just right, you know... <laughs> Middle of November, it's fine. Yep. <laughs> yep. We'll throw back to October 31st there. <laughs> so meanwhile, this bulge in the crab's belly is continuing to grow until there's kind of a knob and the, the outer surface of the, uh, the shell is kind of flaking away. So then there's a little access point Gross. in the knob. Uh, now... Uh-huh. If a male saculina larva is lucky enough to find such a crab, it makes its way to this little knob with the access point. Mm-hmm. And it can't fit inside. Yeah. But then he does his own version of the injection slash metamorphosis. Um, of course he does. Which sends him down. It's like, it's like a wormhole tunnel to the inside of the female saculina. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. This is like a turducken uh-huh. kind of situation. Yeah. <laughs> and so he just sets just up shop there. He, like basically, <laughs> he becomes basically the little sperm factory attached to her body. Oh, gross. <laughs> oh, this is and the worst. <laughs> um, Nature uh, finds a way. Nature's turducken. Yes. That There you go. That, that is... <laughs> Parasitic turducken. Parasitic turducken is probably going to be the uh, episode title. Now you know where the title came from, folks. Oh, awful. (laughs) So the crab is now sort of a gestating puppet for the saculina. Uh huh. (laughs) It can't. It can't. I mean, gestation puppet's a good title too. They're just flying out of the woodwork here. Yeah. (laughs) It can't molt or grow anymore. It can't. You know, like uh, crabs normally, if they lose a craw- uh, claw when they're 
trying to escape a predator, they can re- regrow one, but they can't mm-hmm. do that anymore. They can't mate. They just eat, provide for the parasite. And crabs, uh, female crabs actually typically care for and carry their eggs in a special place on their belly called a brood pouch. Mm-hmm. And the female crab will like groom it. She keeps it clean. She keeps it nice for the mm-hmm. eggs. And then when she's ready to release her larvae, um, she'll like go to specific spots, kind of a little bit high up, and she'll get the best currents of water so that she can get good dispersal for her, um, her larvae sure. as she releases them. And she kind of waves her claws back and forth to help them sort of swirl on their way. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a bad feeling about this. Yep. Yeah, you could probably guess where this is going. <laughs> Instead of taking care of her own brood patch and eggs, she carefully nurtures the saculina, which is in fact located in the exact uh, same place on her underside. Uh, of course it is. <laughs> yeah. And great. when it's time for the little parasites to go forth into the world, uh, she finds a great spot and waves her claws and sends them on their way. Um, and I do have a, a picture awful. of this. Oh, um, oh, that looks awful. Oh. <sighs> so it's a crab. Yeah. With, with lo- it looks like its intestines <laughs> are coming out. It looks That's like what it looks like. Picture a rot two rotten green eggs <laughs> that are that maybe like, look like, like snake eggs, or like pick the color of like, like pickles that have gone bad. Yeah, do pickles even go bad? I don't know. They're it's, like a weird olive type green. They're like. They're like the size of one of the claws, at least, of this crab. They're big. Oh. Big and green and slimy. Yeah. I hate this. So I have one one more even weirder thing. Oh, Um, gosh. So if a female parasite happens to land in a male crab's body, she, she basically forces him to turn into and act like a female crab. Okay. His body will change shape to be like a female crab's body with room for a brood pouch, and he will then do all those nurturing behaviors that a female crab does just to hmm. um, take care of the parasite and her eggs. I mean, so, that's kind of cool, but that's horrifying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, man. I'm going to have nightmares. I'm not. I thought that it's was wonderful. A- that was a really good one. Uh, when I came across yeah. that, I just had to share it. A special thanks Thank this episode to uh, the excellent Carl Zimmer and his article, Do Parasites Rule the World? from Discover Magazine. They absolutely do. They do. And um, so that's, that's what I have. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, Kirk will share something with us. It's real uplifting, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Prepare to be disappointed. Oh, God. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, these last few years have had me thinking about plagues and pandemics. <laughs> Can't imagine Wait, why. Why? Right. Why? Who, right. Who I don't know. Just sort of random <laughs> thought popped in my head. Uh, uh, I'm sure n- I'm not the only one who has had the thought that we are the survivors of previous pandemics or to be more accurate, like our ancestors are the survivors of all the previous pandemics uh, that yeah. came before us. I know my, uh, 
yeah. great grandfather died in the eight, uh, 1918 flu pandemic. Uh, you know, we are we're we're the descendants of the ones that survived, right? So many people have actually yes. wondered this uh, and wondered what this means from like an evolutionary standpoint. For example, uh, will kids born in the future be more resistant to COVID because we survived? Uh, the answer to that hmm. one is pretty simple. Likely, no. Uh, most humans on Earth will come down with COVID, but most of them will not die. Uh, in fact, uh, most deaths occur in older people and those who are past the childbearing age. I realize not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, so, you know, right. those people have already um, passed their genes along by the time that they, um, you know, end up passing passing away from COVID. Right. It's, um, the, it's the misconception of people uh, like going through and it changes your DNA or something like that. And yeah, that's, that's not, that, that's, that's no. not Darwinism. That's Lamarckism. And it's, it's, even though someone's arguing with me on Reddit today about it, no, that's not how the world works. Um, hmm. So, uh, you know, so the natural selection uh, that took their genes out of the gene pool, like, you know, when they passed away, um, occurred mm -hmm. after they had already passed on their genes. So from an evolution standpoint, COVID won't have played a role in shaping the human genome very much, maybe a tiny bit, but probably not a whole lot. Uh, mm -hmm. What you really need for that to occur is a disease that prunes the gene pool, if you will, um, before people can make more people. So diseases right. mostly attacking kids uh, or people of childbearing ages will statistically have the most effect on how humans evolve. Now, people dying is, of course, sad and bad. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there is this idea out there that at least it might in the long run, um, like help humans evolve to be more disease resistant and just overall better and more adapted to our planet. And this fits in with the common idea that evolution is a pathway to improvement and getting better. But that's no. not how evolution works. Um, I think no. <laughs> I saw the article that you are going to talk about. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, um, Evolution can be a very chaotic process. And selecting for a desirable trait may come at the cost of also selecting for another undesirable trait at the same time. And, right. and what is desirable at one time may prove undesirable at another time. And this is something we've long suspected happened after the Black Plague. And some new evidence shows that we were right. So many cool. of our ancestors survived, uh, but it came at a cost. And we are still paying that cost today. Really? Uh, if you. Yeah, if you think about it, you need a robust immune system to kill off infections. And the mm -hmm. plague was one hell of an infection. Uh, researchers have long suspected that those with a slightly more active immune system might have been better at fighting the plague. The mm -hmm. danger is, though, you don't want an overactive immune system. I, I have to shake my head like every time I see all of these supplements being sold at the grocery store or worse, mm -hmm. at the pharmacy, who should know better. <laughs> Uh, that claim to boost your immune system. Uh, it's a really good thing that most of those supplements uh, are bogus because you really, really don't want to boost your immune system. Uh, what no. happens is it starts to fight your own body. And That's get... called an autoimmune disorder. Exactly. Yeah. You get an autoimmune disorder uh, like rheumatoid oh. arthritis, lupus, diabetes, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. These are not things you want to have. So no. anywho, back on task not here, uh, many years ago, um, researchers uh, people, or people kind of noticed something interesting. 
autoimmune diseases are more common in people with ancestry from areas that experienced the Black Plague than in populations that did oh. not experience it. Um, so that's, you know, exactly. It's interesting. Um, there was speculation that those people who survived the plague were those who had a more active or perhaps slightly overactive immune system. And the speculation was that they survived and then passed on those genes to their offspring. Um, mm -hmm. And while the overactive immune systems may have saved them from the plague, it also has led to the diseases I mentioned above. Now, the Black Death killed off about 30 to 50 percent of the population uh, in Europe uh, and also like the Middle East and North Africa. And mm -hmm. no one was really keeping exact numbers back then because, uh, frankly, the people keeping numbers are probably the, also the ones dying. Uh, but yeah. it's estimated that somewhere between 75 and maybe as many as 200 million people died from the yeah. Black Death or the Black Plague, depending on what you want to call it. Um, yeah, that was a huge selection pressure <laughs> uh, in yeah. theory. Absolutely. But without, without DNA samples from people that lived 700 years ago. Um, the link remained plausible, but technically circumstantial, uh, as opposed to being proven. Until now. Oh, so great. researchers at McMaster University's Ancient DNA Center uh, just published a really fascinating study. Uh, scientists studied dental DNA from 206 people who lived in England and in Denmark during a 100-year period uh, either hmm. during or after the Black Death swept through. So they could kind of compare those two, th those two different groups. Or right. Different groups, technically. But um, many of these people were buried in mass graves called plague pits. Uh, importantly, though, yep. many of them were from after the plague period so they could look for those differences in the DNA from before and after the plague. Basically, what they, they wanted to see is, like, who survived and then maybe if there, see if there was a why, right? So mm -hmm. they have now reported that there were indeed changes in the part of human DNA that deals with immunity. And they identified 245 gene variants in the DNA from L the London samples. Uh, and then they compared that to the gene changes from Denmark. And it seems like four of those changes matched up really well between those two populations from the different countries. And hmm. one in particular uh, seems pretty important. It's an allele called, ready? RS2549794, pretty uh, impressive uh -huh. name there. Rolls Great the name, tongue. super it creative. It does, yeah. As an aside, when I saw that that they listed the allele I, in this, re, in this uh, research paper, I got really excited, and I pulled up my personal DNA profile because I'm exactly the kind of nerd who has, of course, uh, yes. had his DNA sequenced. Wow, of course. Um, mm -hmm. But sadly, RS2549794 is not one of the SNPs um, that the service I use checks for. So I have no idea whether or not I have that particular um, allele. But we love and, and what, that and, you and how it, looked for it, how it might anyway. be affected. I did. Of course I looked. <laughs> That's um, great. I certainly do know that the plague ripped through the villages where my family came from because I've done a lot of genealogy research and you can, you can see you know, where everyone died and whatnot. Uh, it was a pretty dark time. Um, and I know that there was like, it came through multiple times, so there's a good yeah. chance... I guess that I, I might be a carrier of that allele, um, but I actually don't know of uh, anyone in my family who has any kind of autoimmune diseases. So that's pretty great. Um, yeah, so that's definitely RS, a good thing. Yeah, RS2549794 uh, changes how the ERAP2 gene is expressed um, and having it seem to give people a 40 to 50% better chance of surviving the plague. 
which is it's hmm. pretty good. That's, that's really that's, good. That's really that's good. amazing. Um, Especially yeah, since so, like the odds are you like come in contact with the plague more than once. Oh yeah, it was. Uh, I want to say every like seven years or so, it would it would come on rolling through. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh, okay, we know there's a connection between this gene and the plague. What about other diseases that people experience today? Uh, the researchers were able to show that as well. The variants that seem to offer protection from the plague have also been shown to cause increased susceptibility to autoimmune diseases. So they were able to kind of show the connection on both ends of that, which is really fascinating. So That's strange really cool. but true. Um, if you happen to be a person who suffers from an autoimmune disease or have people in your family who do something like rheumatoid arthritis, you can actually blame your ancestor who successfully fought off the Black Death. Pretty strange, pretty yeah. wild. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my source this week cool. was you wouldn't be here to complain was, about it. So yeah, you you would not. I mean, but that's to true. be clear though, there were pe- lots of people who survived um, who did not have this gene. So it's not like the mm-hmm. whole population. We don't all get autoimmune diseases, but it's much more common than it would have been um, had this not come through. Uh, most of my source material this week was. Uh, the, the Nature Journal article, uh, Evolution of Immune Genes is Associated with the Black Death. Pretty succinct title there. Uh, yeah. It came out in October of 2022. Cool. Very cool. Fascinating. Yeah, pretty well. Thanks, Kirk. Yeah. You're welcome. Well, that's all we got this week. Uh, you know, thanks for tuning in. See you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.